0: The more we can minimize um, the opportunity for error, that, that helps my stress levels and everybody around me and helps my patients. But uh, the idea of internal regulation or interoception is, is so interesting because that that is, you know, where we can start when we're working to improve our own performance. And yeah, I like that, you know, jujitsu and martial arts and yoga and you know, these things are tools for self-calibration.
1: Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Cheryl Martin. Dr. Martin is an emergency physician and a fellow of the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine and the founder and host of the Mindful Medic Podcast, which is designed to optimize performance and well-being of emergency physicians. She's a long-term yoga practitioner and a trail runner, and was recently appointed an Australasian College of Emergency Medicine regional wellbeing champion. The theme of this episode is building a culture that helps us create not only excellence in our own practice, but also longevity and health over the course of our career. To get there, we go back and forth between ideas on the individual personal level, and on the team and structural level that can support this. And we really explore what it would look like to build out a core collection of ideas around mindfulness and practice that every emergency provider should know. Before we jump into the episode, a reminder, we are getting closer to the release of the Emergency Mind book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and it brings together mental models, tools, and lessons, both from my own practice of emergency medicine and also from other arenas and experts at performance under pressure, like what you're used to hearing on this podcast. It's a book I wish I had when I was starting out as an emergency doctor, and I am honestly just really thrilled to be able to share it with you all very soon. To learn more about the book and to check out a sample chapter, head over to emergencymind.com book. Okay, all that said, let's jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, well, Cheryl, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you. I'm a huge fan of your work and, and just, just welcome aboard. I think the the
0: the fanship is all on my part um no I'm really um, oh, very honoured at the opportunity to connect with you um I have actually very recently discovered um more of your work obviously we both had a mutual guest on the podcast um Stephen Hearns and, um, you know, it then allowed me to dive into some of the great work you're doing. And I am thinking, oh, when you reached out to do a crossover, I thought this is a perfect opportunity. And as I said, I'm, I'm more at risk of wanting to dive into your emergency mind because I know the book is coming out in a couple of weeks, um, oh. but um, I will try and hold back so that. It, uh...
1: <laughs> no, it's all good. We'll, we'll, we'll mix and match over the course of over the course of all of this. Um, well, I'm wondering if you don't mind if we can start. Do you want to give folks listening like a, a quick overview of who you are and and what you do and 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 what your space is in sort of this whole world? Yeah, sure.
0: Um, so I am an emergency physician. Um, I am a fellow of the Australasian College of Emergency Medicine. So I'm currently here in the um, beautiful state of Tasmania. So that is in the northeast um, island state of the country. Uh, This is my fourth Australian state. Um, I am probably five, six years post fellowship um, by this point. Um, and you've probably already gathered that I don't sign very Australian. So I am a SCAZI these days. <laughs> I have been in Australia for 16 years, but I originally hail from um, Scotland and in Glasgow. So, you know, my mutual, uh, our mutual contact now and my, one of my former mentors and still a mentor today, Stephen Hearns, uh, uh, hails from Glasgow. Um, I came you know, I think shortly after my undergraduate medical training in Glasgow, Um, always been a bit obsessed with Australia. I have family here. I came when I was very young and I think I was always determined I was going to do at least some work here. I only planned to come for a year. Um, So I came, I think I'd I'd already decided quite early I wanted to do emergency medicine. Um, I did my internship, some ED in Scotland came out. Um, loved it, but did go back, um, had a, a play with uh, anaesthetics and, and orthopaedics and tried a few other hats on. And then, yeah, really attracted to the um, fellowship program here in Australia and came back and did my advanced training in emergency um, here. So since then, um, so I have, so why am I interested particularly in you know I suppose your subject matter, but I, I mean I think this is all of our subject matters, Absolutely. you know how and how we think about thinking. This is this is core um skill set for us. And and this is really this is I mean, I think we talk about soft skills, but this is the hard work, I reckon. Um and I think, you know, why I'm interested in this probably because like many of us, I've struggled with it over the years and I, I continue to do that. Um, a lot of this is practice. We don't call it perfect, we call it practice because we step up each day. Um, and I think, you know, I know a lot of your work is focused on how we perform and improve our performance under pressure. I mean, why is this important? It's important because we want to be the best for our patients, we want to be the best for ourselves and for each other. Um, I mean, that is the basic premise of this. And I know particularly in emergency medicine, performance under pressure is important because we, you know, we are in a high pressure environment and we do occasionally have, you know, I heard that I hadn't actually heard the term halo um, before. So, you know, the high acuity, low occurrence um, uh, procedures or set of circumstances that can come our way at any given moment. And I know that is partly what attracts many of us to emergency medicine. Um, but how we actually prepare for that over time is important. And I know we'll probably dive into that and you know, the work of, oh, I mean, I think people like Cliff Reed. Now, Cliff would be a great person to have on your podcast, you yeah, know, definitely. He was the person that got me thinking about yourself, your team and environment, and him and Chris Nixon and, and Scott Weingart, you know, they've done some really great work um in this space and it's just developed over the past decade. Mm. But I suppose my my other interest, as I've said, is, you know, how we actually then, I think the other big challenge facing us and, you know, you, you throw a pandemic into the mix and you see how, how the, you know, the whole thing can quite easily implode is how we keep stepping up day after day um, and maintain the longevity of our practice um, in the face of, you know, chronic Stressors and and you know, micro traumas and the microaggressions and all the you know the burden of clerical load and and our you know our our places of work only get busier and more complex. Um and you know, I think some of this is looking at the science, some of it's looking at the art of practice. And, you know, if you want to learn something new, read an old book and the ancient wisdom. Um and I think for each of us it's it's finding a set of tools um that help us work so i think that was a big kind of pre-opening <laughs> gamble but um yeah. yeah that's
1: that's awesome and and you took so many different paths in there which which i love and we're gonna we're gonna dig through so many of them so um i, I think that's a wonderful tension and to explore this idea of the halo the the high acuity you know um low-occurrence or low-frequency sort of task that we have to do, that we have to be prepared for. And, and I think one of my previous guests and, and one of the, the co-hosts of the podcast, Andrea Austin, said something to me which I which I think about a lot, which is, your patient doesn't care how common or rare the procedure is. Your patient just is suffering and needs you to do it. And you know so you have to put yourself in the position where you're able to do these halo-style events, and you're able to do them well. And you also have to tune yourself in the same time to be able to perform day after day, like you're saying. And there's a tension in there because in some sense, those tunings, some of them are the same, but some of them are quite different. And the things that prepare you to perform immediately are are maybe not the same things that help you perform over long periods of time. Um, So I hope that's a theme we can keep going back to over the course of this conversation, because I think that's a really rich, fertile ground. And... you you know,
0: I love the episode with Andrea. She was fantastic. It was a really powerful clinical example she
1: gave as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So when did you first start thinking about that tension? Where was it in that, in that whole arc of your training that you first said to yourself, Hey, I'm learning all these skills, but geez, I, you know, I have to somehow figure out how to apply that. And there's these rare things and these day things. And, and you know, you balance what Andrea Austin saying with like what Christina Shenvey said in one of the previous episodes about raising the mean of all of your shifts and sort of doing the work to take the average of your shifts across and, and bring that up. But wh- when did you first start thinking about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, so I think there is there's two. there's I mean, I, I have been thinking, thinking about this. Um, so in terms of those high acuity, um, lower occurrence scenarios, I think the first kind of real experience I had that was um, in the, the clinical space. Um, so after I returned from Australia, I did um, and I joined an anesthetic training program. And I was in a district general hospital and um, we do our, you know, a couple of months of kind of mandatory training before we're ticked off to be on nights on our own. So we're the airway person for the hospital, usually somebody pretty junior down in the emergency um, medicine department. And I remember, you know, a couple of weeks of very civilized nine to five, you know, general anesthesia, putting in some LMAs and, you know, doing some really controlled intubations. And it was all very nice. And, um, and I was due to be starting my first seven night shifts um as the airway person I think the following week and they had uh so this was probably I mean uh, anesthetics were early adopters and they had a high fidelity um sim lab that had been set up in Stirling and I will never forget this day um it was pretty miserable as was quite often in winter in Scotland and I, I remember driving up there in the dreich pouring rain and I, I don't think I had done much pre-reading. I don't think I had at that point, you know, I'd done a wee bit of, you know, ABC kind of ALS through my medical school training. I always really enjoyed it. So I, you know, I wasn't too phased and I, um, I the, the things that I remember, I think I was up first um, was the, the first thing. And I was put in a room and we were being filmed and the audience were outside. And I think I had one assistant inside and I was given, um, you know, a, a young man who I think he had a testicular torsion and he needed a rapid sequence induction for an emergency theater. And I thought, right, okay, I, you know, I've just learned this, I, I can do this. And, um, I, you know, started the process and then quite rapidly found myself in a can't intubate, can't oxygenate um, situation. And I floundered. I floundered. I was thrown. Um, I still recall this as, and you know, Stephen Hearns will talk about stress inoculation. This was stress inoculation. And I don't know if it really had the psychological safety side of things in retrospect, because it still comes across as quite traumatic, but definitely was a learning opportunity. And I remember coming out and uh, I, I can't even, I think they just cut the scenario at, at a certain point. So there wasn't even really a kind of end point. And then quite soon after this, um, we were shown Martin Bromley's very powerful, um, this is just a routine operation. So that was just after this. And, um, you know, I mean, the the brilliant work. And I think if you're not familiar with the work of Martin Bromley, so this would have been, so for people listening, this would have been 2007, so not long after this came out and, and martin is a pilot um uh, with a lot of aviation experience who were you know well primed and and in, in many of these things uh, well before we were and um very tragically his wife um died during a routine ent operation in in this very scenario that i found myself this morning so it was really powerful stuff um but it you know i, I still remember it. this is many many years on this is 14 years on um and i um and I have to say that probably those night shifts I went on to do in Glasgow in the middle of winter and in DGH were probably more of a baptism of fire. So it probably wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, all bad. Um, but yeah, the ability for us to do better, this is why we need to do better.
1: So I want to build some some structure around what you just said to to translate some of that for folks that are coming at this from a different angle. Mm. Um, even as I wish you could have seen my heart rate as you're describing that story, because I, mm. I, I know that feeling you're describing. So um, when you go to place a breathing tube, when you go to anesthetize a patient or, or, or do a rapid sequence intubation, um, You can occasionally and quite rarely end up in this circumstance where you can't intubate and you can't oxygenate, meaning that you can't place a breathing tube. And more importantly, you can't get oxygen into the patient's lungs. This is a very rare circumstance. And and the answer to this circumstance usually is surgical front of the neck access, meaning that you're at that point abandoning what you're doing and cutting the patient's neck open to put a breathing tube directly into their their trachea. It's a really rare circumstance. Uh, Most of us go extended periods of time without having to do that procedure, without having to end up in that circumstance. Um, And some people go most, or if not all of their career, never actually ending up in that circumstance in in real life. And if you look at the data surrounding um, when emergency doctors or other uh, operators of one sort or another, really run into trouble in that circumstance, one of the things that you pretty consistently see is that the the switch in your mind to realize I am now in a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario and the mental work that it takes to abandon the previous mental model that things were going okay and operate now from this other reality and to rapidly accept that reality and move, it's actually that step. It's the recognition step that appears to be the hardest for most of us, not actually physically accomplishing the surgical front of neck access in most cases. And so that type of a problem, which is where how and when do you realize that there's been a sea change underneath you and you now have to react to an entirely different reality, is is a really deep and powerful and very challenging problem that everybody who operates in emergency situations needs to become familiar with and face and whether or not you're performing emergency anesthetics and intubating people like maybe you don't have to decide if somebody's in a can't intubate can't oxygenate scenario but if you're operating in emergencies you need that skill set of dropping your previous universe and realizing the universe that you're actually in and Man, that is hard. That is so hard. And that feeling that you get when you, you're sort of realizing, oh, geez, this is about to happen is, I mean, there, there's no way to describe that over a podcast. It's just this visceral sort of like pull that that you get into. And um so I feel for you in that scenario. I, I think that's an incredibly hard thing. I'm so happy that they put you through that in training before you did your night shifts. What an awesome thing to feel that and to be sort of thrust into that, that fire before you get into it in, in real life. Now, have, have you ever found yourself in a can't intubate, can't oxygenate scenario in, in real life after that?
0: Uh, fortunately, not thus far, um, but yes, we know that could happen any day. Um, and, you know, I think that building on that, the work then that you we start to talk about Cliff Reed, I started to attend some of his, um, so courses, he had a um, a course on making things happen. Um, I mean, I think anybody listening um, in the space who's interested in his work, you know, I think things like his, uh, you know, advice to a young resuscitationist or emergency uh, medicine and making things happen. Um, YouTube, um, I think it was from SMAC, um, Uh, webinars are you know they should be mandatory listening um so I attended a a couple of his workshops to to try and start to develop my own skill and I I suppose that was about the time I was trying to build up my own my my readership around this and I'd be interested to see what kind of you know learnings and and what material you went to um over time I um certainly uh, Cliff gave me a lot of um uh, kind of I, I I suppose um novels and other books that have guided um you know my practice since um so we have things like the the rise of superman the um you know flow i hadn't really mastery um thinking fast and slow all of those um and i I have to say i find this quite interesting because i i had to go back further um and i'd be interested to, to know if even before you did medicine if this was something that you were interested in this topic even then
1: um yeah, I and mean, I that's a so I um I grew up doing martial arts and mm-hmm. there is a really interesting um <laughs> i mean i mean there's flashing back to a bunch of scenarios that you know, you know in as a younger as a younger person but you know you you have all this sort of like theoretical knowledge about how stuff works and then okay all of a sudden somebody's trying to punch you in the face and is what you're thinking about actually something that you can bring to bear in that moment and that skill set of recognizing reality changing underneath you and around you maybe even when you can't physically see what's happening or the person's behind you or something like that is 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 a big piece of that and you know for me I think going into um, starting to run resuscitations and starting to uh, run traumas and realizing hey I'm, I'm using the medical knowledge that I had from school but I'm using a lot of the procedural and functional knowledge I have actually from sort of the martial arts world and well, what is that like and how does that work and, um, and there's this book uh, Deep Survival by, by Lawrence Gonzalez And he I don't know if you've ever come across this, but he. I have come across it. I do. Yeah,
0: Yeah. whether I've read it
1: or somebody has recommended it. Well, he studies people who have survived disasters and he tries to get to talk to them about how is it that you've made it through this really, you know, crazy thing like shipwrecks and avalanches and things like this. And and it's an incredibly interesting book and one of the things he keeps coming back to is this idea that there's this thing that he sort of describes as the survival mindset which is that the way your brain and your body works and your view of reality and your view of your place in the universe has to fundamentally change for you to survive a type of event like this and you either adapt and become this new human in a new part of the universe or you don't and you don't make it out of the avalanche and I was just blown away when I read that, because to me, that that is so much of what we're doing in the emergency department, right? I mean, we're not under an avalanche, but we're looking at somebody whose oxygen sat is rapidly falling off. And you're realizing, hey, this is actually a different universe than I thought it was. And therefore, I have to be a different human than I was a few minutes ago, in order to make it through this next step, or this person's going to die right in front of me. And, you know, that that understanding that, well, hey, you can change your relationship with what's happening accept what's happening, figure out a better way through it. And then, okay, well, if that's possible, then how do you set up the right circumstances and the best opportunities for you to succeed at that? How do you build your mind and your team and your environment the best way to do that? And that's just sort of a a rambling arc about the way that I approach some of that.
0: But no, I have listened to you. And and I think Cliff talks about he does jujitsu as well and talks about the martial arts experience. And you know, that my kind of background is, you know, more from the, the kind of yoga, but it is very, very similar. I mean, you, talk about, actually when I listened to your episode on sang Foy, and um, this idea of, you know, uh, stability or your performance and, and maintenance of equanimity under pressure, it really reminded me of, uh, we were talking on one of my episodes with Dominic about Doriti, with one of the Yama's, this idea of steadfastness mm-hmm. in the face of ever-changing circumstances. I mean, it is that, you know, it's the same thing, but what it kind of boils down to is, can you regulate your own internal space And also, you know, I I think there comes a point where you can not actually control what's happening right about you. I think we need to set up safe systems um, to to allow us to do that. And I think that is part of the challenge that we face day to day, is that our systems don't necessarily support, um, you know, that we do work in an organized chaos, but there are certainly ways that we can offload some of that and decrease cognitive load and make it a safer place. You know, it's laboratory of errors, Pat Croskery said, the emergency department. You know so we the more we can minimize um, the opportunity for error that that helps my stress levels and everybody around me and helps my patients. But uh, the idea of internal regulation or interoception is is so interesting because that that is you know where we can start when we're working to improve our own performance and yeah I like that you know jujitsu and martial arts and yoga and you know these things are tools for Mm self-calibration um my um so I'll just one anecdote if I may um I think that this so my my dad I don't have anyone medical in my family and um my dad um is an accountant and he fell into his work. Um, it was all apprenticeship in those days. And um, I think he literally did turn up at the pub one day and his friend was in a suit and he said, come along, I'm going for an interview. And um, they both got offered a job in an accountancy firm in Glasgow. And they <laughs> they ended up partners of that firm many years later. Fortunately, my dad actually loves accountancy. Um, but he, and he did go to university in, in his second year. But I think he found himself quite early on, it would be the late eighties, early nineties, you know, the kind of rise of you know I I, Peter Drucker the the knowledge worker and and he was he was a workaholic you know I'd I'd never see him he wouldn't um be home for dinner he'd work on the weekends you know it'd be books and you know I don't always remember just books everywhere and uh, I suspect he was probably quite a stressful boss to be around at that point um he had had an ulcer and you know there's a few things and I always remember I was about 11 or 12 and I I came home one day and my mom was like your dad's sleeping this was on a weekday and I was like oh dad's never in and he was sick he he'd got some kind of gastro bug I always remember looking round into the room and he was green ashen just looked really ill and the next thing I, I remember is the next morning sitting at breakfast saying oh how's dad he's gone. Um, he got up at four in the morning to drive down south for a business meeting. Um, so this kind of happened. And then a few weeks and months later, my dad fell in a hole. He he basically was really tired. He'd lost his enthusiasm. He, you know, he went to a few doctors. They were like, hmm, it's chronic fatigue. I mean, he had a a perfect uh storm or set up there for a post you know viral illness it's like i mean it was it wasn't rocket science really mm-hmm. and um you know he did a wee bit of soul searching through that time he didn't really drink didn't really smoke i think he found a, a gp a bit interested in kind of lifestyle and integrative approaches to health but i think the main thing that he did was um start to focus on his own stress management and self-regulation and he so this was in the day before our podcasting would would have been um available and he had tapes these cassettes so I would go to school as a teenager and he would drive me there and we'd be listening to Peter Drucker you know Stephen Covey. I you know I I was gifted the effective executive um or my first year at uni that was my my first week my brother got it too I, whether I actually read it at that point I'm not sure um you know it was some Deepak Chopra in there It was a bit of everything but what it you know I mean even to this day and my dad's never stepped on a yoga mat or he's never done martial arts but he is one of the most kind of equanimous you know kind of very very easily you know but not very easily flustered um men that i know um and i think that's all the work that he has done so i find it quite interesting that you know that's uh i think that's the work we're still doing today
1: yeah definitely and and what is that you used a, a great word before you before that story which i which i love uh introception what does introception look like for you like in your day-to-day life like like are you are you still reading are you still listening to those like you know stephen covey tapes and, and deepak chopra or 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 like what does introception look like for you
0: for me um well i mean i am i do practice yoga every day um and my mat is rolled out um next to my bed and you know I think some days that won't be that will be five minutes of form breath intention meditation which we might talk about at the end but you know check your form you know where am I holding tension I am a I'm a tooth grinder I am I know a lot of emergency medicine physicians that grind their teeth after a set of night shifts I famously grind out half a molar actually
1: (laughs) I'm I'm laughing because I I recently went to the to the dentist um when it was again safe to do so because you know it wasn't yep. for a while at the beginning of the pandemic and and the dentist um was a wonderful person looks at me and goes you know your teeth you look like you've been grinding your teeth have you been under any stress lately and I I sort of you know blinked at him with my mouth open and all the instruments in and said you, you know I'm, I'm an ER doctor practicing in a pandemic like yeah there's there's been yeah. a little bit yeah um but Okay. Okay. So you so you do a bunch of yoga and you do it every day and you've been doing it for a, a long time.
0: Yeah. So twenty years. I've I've taken some time out post fellowship and and done some some more dedicated training. Um. I've worked with uh, athletes. I've worked with um. There's a there's a group of uh, there's a group of us around the world who do a wee bit of work with patients. Yeah. There's there's some really interesting, yeah. Kind of trying to marry the art and science, but you know, essentially, there's a lot of. Uh, misconceptions about what yoga is but it's essentially a self calibration tool it's just mm. a tool um and you know the physical postures might be a way in to to you know my podcast is mindful and people think i can't spell but you know the reality is that paying attention on purpose in the present moment is really hard and you need a way in and the reality is most of us are busy and in our head so for me my practice and it is a practice like everything else um like you on in in jiu-jitsu it's it's a a, the real yoga happens off the mat and in life like the the real martial arts you know um yeah and I, i mean i I am under no illusions that throwing yoga a a group of emergency practitioners is, is going to, you know, help all of the challenges that we face. I mean, I think many of these, um, I know we haven't con- gone on to the kind of longer side, but I really feel that our performance and our health and well-being are, are closely interrelated. And many of the challenges we face are... You know, at much bigger levels than ourselves, um, and we've now get, got some good data to support that. Um, and you know, there is a lot of work happening, um, but I think you know, integrating and percolating this through training. I certainly like. I I, I, I do a lot of running as well, and, and uh, i I find the so the sports gene. There's another great book by David Epstein. That was one of the early books that I, I started to look at. You know, mastery and oh, there's so much. There's a big body of you know, sci- science and art of practice from some certainly sporting um, literature. And, you know, I think about all the things that I have done. I've had a coach in, in my athletic career and, you know, I periodize my training. I, you know, I drill this deliberate practice and, and, um, you know, it, it, the idea of, I, I love that book, uh, Peak Performance, which is a bit like, you know, there's, there's, there's so many variants. So like Anders Ericsson's mm-hmm. book, Peak is great as well. But the idea of, you know incubate and so immerse yourself then incubate then insight you know to 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 actually improve our performance the idea of adaption um but I think also married with that the opportunity to recover and to actually get the benefits of your your training and I think the problem we have is that there's so much work to be done and when you're certainly training um there's so many hours and so many night shifts and so many um weekends and, and we have to do the work um but we we don't necessarily do any kind of deliberate practice. I certainly did not periodize my um advanced training well. Um, I didn't prioritize my basic needs. Um, and I think I'm very strong for our um from from the trainees that come after me now to you know have the I have the Fellowship 101 talk where we talk about all of these things that I, I probably in retrospect could have done a lot better.
1: Mm. Um, yeah and so so what would that look like for you if i gave you a magic wand and told you that you could redesign emergency medicine training mm. you know how do you think that would would come together and 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 maybe this is a good opportunity also to sort of go back to that that tension we were describing between needing to be ready to do these incredibly intense moments whether they're a, a halo mm. exercise or not um versus being able to have a long uh Growing career over the course of your life. Yeah, yeah. and
0: I think there. Are, I mean, this is a great question, and I don't think there are any easy answers. But there's certainly a lot of things that we we can start. There's there's plenty of places we can start. Um, and I agree that probably as a trainee, those peak performing procedures that I needed to be ready for. You know, I, I think that that it, you certainly will ameliorate your stress if you're prepared for those things and you know we've got some great programs now we've got the procedures course here in Australia where we look at those very procedures but I think if you're you know a DMT or you, you know, any consultant cuz you get the opportunity to teach on the go at any point with your trainees um to be able to to actually hone those through the program so we can definitely do that side i think the things that that i my biggest challenge is the day to day cognitive overload and and the kind of you know we call it i think it was cliff again who talked about the zigzag walk you know you go to see patient a you you do your history examination you form your plan you turn to go across the room to execute said plan and then you get asked on route to write up some pain relief for patient b so you know before i write up strong pain relief i like to see the patient and then you've done that and then oh patient c um can you just have a wee look at this ecg then again, you need some clinical context. Um, and then there's a call overhead. Oh, uh, we've got one of the gastroenterologists on about patient D, um, about a referral you made earlier. So you go to do that. Um, and then you kind of get to where you were going and you were like, what, you know, what was I actually here to do? Um, and, and I think, um, you know, I, I, there is a lot of danger in that. Um, and, you know, I, I know Steve talks about fra- frazzle, but I think, that is more how we set up our departments um, in terms of how they're organized and what support systems we have to decrease um, the, the cognitive uh, burden. Um, certainly, if we're talking specifically about trainees, I think smart rostering. I mean, you've just described to me that you're doing some night shifts and then some teaching and then going on to day shifts. And, you know, that I think the science would probably say that, you know, obviously doing shift work in actually rotating it in terms of your circadian rhythm. So going from days to evenings to nights, um, there's certainly a bit of uh, work around that, that that, um, would be helpful. Um, I think appropriate rostering for time off for trainees. Um, I know that I, I think also periodization through their training program. And that's something that you can start from day dot. Um, I, you know, ran together 12 months of emergency medicine in a, a, a trauma center within six months in a tertiary pediatric center in winter to then ICU where it was a week on a week off nights and days and I, I was doing my research um, project on the week off I think that was to be 50 hours and you know it, that wasn't smart I mean I was exhausted at the end of that and if I'm really honest I love my job but I ended up at I limped towards the end of my fellowship and um, I felt a bit spat out the other side and it took me a wee bit of time to actually, I'd lost a bit of my, I thought, oh gee, I thought this was going to be the pinnacle of my professional career. You know, we really, the learning continues, but um, I think I could have done it much better. Um,
1: Yeah, that's such a, that's, man that's such a good way to put that feeling spat out the other side of it i think that's unfortunately all too common of a feeling about it and and you're you're getting so many like really good things in there about how we could be designing things better and i guess and, and maybe this is something we started talking about slightly before we hit we hit record but that there's I sort of think about it in like these these like pillars or these clusters, right? So there's like the internal work that you do as a human. There's mm-hmm. like the work that you do as part of a team and the work that you do as as part of a group and a structure. And then mm-hmm. maybe a fourth, com- a fourth bucket would be sort of like human factors, ergonomics, the way that all these things sort of fit together. And that if we're trying to design this from scratch, we really need to design intelligent pieces for each of those things and then allow us to actually train on them based on what we know about how training works so so I I guess my question is what would a different universe look like where we train but we don't feel spat out the other side
0: I mean all of the things that you just said the supportive systems the appropriate rostering the time and space to to recover, recharge, restore, you know, a, a pri- I, I, I suppose, it, I mean, it is, it's, it's culture first, it's making a whole culture that's geared towards us winning and, and doing our best and performing our best. And I think that's multifaceted. I mean, I, I think James Clear is so eloquent on this, you know, we, we rise to the level of our goals, but we fall to the level of our systems. Uh, I really love that, because I think if you're going to have any Evidence that any of this works, you know, you need buy in at all levels. And if you can, you know, I think this it's a key performance indicator because at the end of the day, it affects patient care, but you want, um, you know, people involved and, and invested. And, you know, I think, I, I don't know if you've read any of that article. Have you read um, the article? nine organizational strategies it was a paper produced by no T. NFL, noseworthy a couple of years ago so they they've been measuring this stuff for 15 years so really performance um, engagement, and engagement they're using burnout criteria and leadership scoring systems Um, i think it's all anonymous at individual level but aggregated um at, at, um system unit level and it, it it's really there's really interesting data um, and some basic things that come out. So certainly, you know, we set the tone, leadership is always uh, right up there as being important, but also in terms of our longevity of practice, um, you know, the idea of developing niche, um, you know, if you can do like one day a week and you, you obviously have a number of interests and I know that this is probably our little passion project in terms of something that we do outside of all of that. But, you know, if you can spend a proportion of your time, um, 20 percent, ideally, you know, that kind of sweet spot, which, which might vary depending on who you are and um, doing the thing that part of your work that that most engages you and enthuses you, you know, that's really important. Um but I think the thing I found disappointing in some of the, the 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 study work was that a lot of us couldn't identify what that is. You know, have mm-hmm. we have we got to the stage where we can not actually recall or identify the bit of our work that is most important to us? Um, so all of those you know little things, and I think in terms of you know very basic things at, at, um, at department level, just engagement um you know the a few studies that that we talked about uh, when we talk about on my podcast the the compass uh, trial I think it was college colleagues meeting to promote and sustain satisfaction Mm. um where they basically just got everybody to give them a bit of money to go outside and have a meal outside the workspace once a month and you know uh, they then measured you know engagement you know, enthusiasm kind of a few other criteria afterwards and lo and behold you know actually people thought this was actually pretty good because they were removed from the clinical space they they saw their you know referring physicians as as humans um you know that that helps us all um they recreated this in new zealand the edge study ED get exercising so
1: um yeah so, um, so- do you do anything like that in your own clinical environment Mm. So we do, um, I mean, I think everywhere that I've worked has some version of uh, wellness and mindfulness training. And resilience training and burnout training and, and it's and I see the face that you're making and I and I have to say that I agree in a lot of ways and it's no knock on the training that we have but I don't think that it answers the fundamental questions that we're talking about because this tension that we're describing where you need to train to do the acute event and you need to train to have a long healthy successful you know universe as a as an ER doctor or whatever you are like like figuring out a way to actually support you in that is a challenge and mm-hmm. individual trainings on burnout is in well intended but i i, I w- doesn't really speak to me on a lot of that a uh, question I don't, i'm not sure it makes it happen i'm not sure it really pushes the needle um you said uh, i mean i agree
0: Yeah, <laughs> and i think the reality is when you're training you know um, we, we've spoken about this uh about this with um christine you know when you're peaking to do anything a bit like in in sport performance you there it's it's work and you have to embrace the suck and and there isn't balance it, it you know that that's that isn't a reality certainly when you're coming up to do something you know like become an emergency physician and, and get to the peak what you think is the peak of your performance um you realize that there's a, another curve uh, you know after that but um you know prioritizing your basic needs you know, still should be essential because Mm -hmm. I think you become unstuck. And I think we are, yeah, and I think that is, you have to set the system up to at least be able to do that.
1: Right. And so there's this low hanging fruit that are, that seems to be small changes that you can make that creates more of what you described as a few seconds ago as, you know, like a culture that sets us up to be able to win. Right. And, and that's what's so fascinating to me is that there's, there's such space in there that you don't have to reinvent the entirety of training. You can make these small nudges in order to, to sort of make things slightly better. Um, and, you know, for me, part of that is actually just to build the vocabulary and the framework to talk about this kind of work, right. To talk about the fact that, Hey, how I feel in my life, how I prepare will actually affect my on the job work, as well as my off the job sort of life and time. And there's, um, um, th- there's this idea I keep coming back to that, that I wonder what you think about that we really should be training emergency staff like we train athletes.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, right. yes. I mean, it yes. seems
1: so obvious to say that out loud like that except that that's so different <laughs> than what so we many actually times. do. Yeah. It's so different than what we actually do. And for you and for anybody that's listening to this, I'd love to hear your your take on this. What are small things that we can do that nudge the culture away from what it is now and nudge it towards the culture that sets us up to succeed and and win, and I'm going to use the word flourish from Martin Seligman's sort of positive psychology aspect. But what are the things that we can do that are small that nudge our emergency practitioner culture towards something that lets us flourish as individuals and teams?
0: So you want me to answer <laughs> that? Many things. You know, I'm just thinking of you know. I, I think like you know, just how I I know that how I turn up each day um, matters. And I think that when I'm leading a team and I have to be conscious that I do set the tone and when it's really busy and, you know, I start throwing my toys out of the trap, I'm not helping anybody. <laughs> you know, it's actually one of my colleagues yesterday, she, she at the start of um, her handover, she'll do a brief two minute timeout meditation. And she says, you know, you're you're welcome to just think about your shopping list if you want. But for those who want to join me in this, we're going to do this and we're going to set our intention for the day. And I um, I'm gonna you know I know you've given me a little homework to to for the end of this podcast and we, we might play with that. But um I, you know I, when I jump on a yoga mat I do that I set a sankalpa or an intention and um, you know I think that should be something I'm then taking off into my work. Um, I think that having time out. I think communication always um throughout the day and making sure people take breaks. So my my job on a day-to-day when it gets busy, I, I think it's more important that people take breaks um, or take time out because they're no use to me the more or the, I'm no use to myself if I don't take a break. And I have to be have to be the example. Um, and I'm, I think that if I can take, I mean I, I've been quite organically doing the compass trial for a number of years now I have a group of female um colleagues um that um yeah and I don't know why we don't have any um uh, male colleagues in that they would be, would be welcome but it's just ended up that way um and we every quarter um we'll just we're all now in different states and obviously through COVID we haven't actually been able to meet physically but you know we'll still make our dinner and do the zoom um you know just get together um I think taking, you know, having critical friends, as well as mentors and coaches are important. You're obviously setting up formal mentoring um, and and co- and maybe coaching, you know, we can talk about coaching. I think maybe I'll talk to, the, to you about that after I've read the Emergency Mind. I've got a coach coming on, our next uh, doctor's coach coming on um, next week. So that will be, uh, hopefully I'll have picked her brains by that point. Um, I think, like you say, uh, having access to good, healthy food. Um, I think even having, you know, visual aids. We talk about cognitive aids for high performance things, but visual aids for, uh, you know, uh, for your own health and and well being. And you know, maybe, oh, when you're going to bed tonight, you know, dim the lights. You know, maybe go for a bath, remove the the, uh, do a memory dump, write down all the things from your day, or um, you know, remove your devices and switch them off an hour before. You know. I mean, I think we, we there's no science <laughs> to manipulate your pineal gland. We should be doing this. Um, and, um,
1: it strikes me again that what you're describing is really all across the spectrum that we set out earlier. So there's like individual things that you do, like you set an, an intention when you show up and you like have a certain... I'm gonna use the word ritual when you're going to sleep that, you, that you're that mm. you sort of working and experimenting on. And that's like internal, like you have to find, I have to find that for myself, I have to experiment with different things and see what actually fits. And then there's the team, which is I'm gonna make sure everybody on the team takes breaks and I'm gonna normalize taking a break. And I'm gonna normally say that, hey, look, our performance gets better when each individual team member is healthy and rested. And then there's organizational stuff, which is creating the culture around this being how we, like we don't do this because we are weak and can't handle it. We do this because we're stronger when we do this together and our patients need us to be as strong as possible and setting that out as the culture of the space to say, hey, we're going to lead by example and we're going to do these things because we believe they make us better. And also saying, well, maybe we don't know. We have to experiment together as a team about it.
0: And what do you think? I mean, I think that, and I mean, like, I will admit that I, I get that I struggle with this. I still fail every day, and I think I've got to fail up and 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 you know, um, declare that. But um, I think the other thing is, if you know, you just mentioned, and I again, I screw up my face, you know, resilience and mindfulness, and you know, all the kind of buzzwords for people that maybe are very resistant to that. Um, because I mean, I, I think that I even now, ugh, because I think these things are so overplayed and so overdone that the actual kind of purpose is is lost somewhere. Um how do you yeah, how do you get by in there? You <laughs> know, how do you you reckon you you get everybody? Um
1: and maybe it is as you see setting up the whole system that you so know you I, I think about this one this one article I read when I was really early in medical school and and it was actually about social determinants of health. Um, mm-hmm. And it was this by this guy Gruen and he, he had this series of ovals in the article. And and the ovals were labeled um, essentially in terms of like how we should be training people. And the analogy that he used was about heart disease. So everybody that studies medicine needs to know some things about heart disease. People that are really interested in heart disease should know slightly more and then people that are absolute experts that are that are interventional cardiologists then they can choose to pursue expert training in this particular thing and that sort of nested oval model is I think my personal answer to this, which is that there's no matter if you hate or love mindfulness or if you're, you know, whatever you are, there's some things that every one of us who perform under pressure need to understand. We need to understand the relationship between our internal environment and the external environment, between letting go of where we don't have control, between accepting reality and, and the way that how we what we do before we show up makes a difference in what we're able to do when we show up. We all have to know that. And so I think there's some sets of trainings. That have to be for there then there's the opportunity the space for people to become champions in this that really love it and to go on and do special training and so maybe you have in the same way you have somebody in your shop who is the expert at ultrasound maybe you have somebody in your shop who's expert at individual introspection and team performance and the human factors person in your shop and that's a role that somebody plays um you know are you that
0: person in your shop
1: i'm i'm certainly trying to become that person yeah Yeah, i I mean i'm I'm, I'm, uh, great i love that and i wake up thinking about this kind of stuff and and it's an absolute um absolute joy of mine that uh you know when our when our residents step up and take over the code bag which is when they're the ones who respond to a code blue scenario somewhere else in the hospital we do a pretty intensive training right around that period as they're, as they're going through that that liminal space of of becoming the person who runs that event and um I think if you made me list out the things I'm most proud of then being the person who delivers the uh mental factors and human factors talk for that training is one of the things I'm I'm hands down the most proud of because I think that's a space where I can really make a difference for for yeah. individuals.
0: I and you undoubtedly are um no I'm uh, yeah I think you're right um and and, and I, I think we are seeing this, you know, across the board. We I think that's mm-hmm. I think there's enough um of us interested. Um yeah, and it is another facet
1: of of
0: yeah, of how we show up and how we get better.
1: Um <laughs> So so then it becomes okay. Well, if we believe that, if we believe there's this nested oval model of what you have to know and what you could know, and then or sorry, what you I think the way you described it is what you what you must know, what you should know, and what you could know, or something like that. Right? There's these these levels between it. I think it falls on us to try to start to define well, what's in there, what's in there that we absolutely really need that every person who trains in emergencies and who performs at the front line what do we must know what must we know in order to actually do that work and then like what's really amazing and wonderful but like only if you want to
0: yeah hmm. so what would you put in the you know everybody
1: yeah and um, non-negotiable skills all right that's the that's the the worst part of asking a question like that is then you have to turn around and try to answer it but I no think, i think it's really interesting um, yeah so uh, i mean I, a couple of things to me that jump out as being incredibly important and, and non-negotiable is is the idea of um, sort of a stoic philosophy concept, right? So Marcus Aurelius says, um, realize that you have Uh, control over your mind and not outside or rather you have control over your mind and not outside events recognize this and you will find your strength and i I think the idea of understanding where you have agency to act and where you don't and that there's a boundary in there that you have to explore uh, really is non-negotiable because that sets you up as a foundational kernel for this idea of well i control how i show up for work i don't control what happens when i'm at work but I control how I show up, and I control how I train, and how I study, and how I prepare, and how I drink water, and how I choose to do these things. And recognizing where you're, where you do have that control, is is part of stepping up as a professional to actually exert that control. Um, and a, a similar version of that, I think, is the idea that that it's up to you to experiment to figure out how you personally perform under pressure. Um, That that's sort of a ground truth that nobody's, you know, I can tell you, hey, the dose of amnioterone in the middle of a code in a, you know, VTAC is 300 milligrams. I can't tell you exactly what you're supposed to do to be able to remember that and deliver that knowledge in the heat of the moment when everything is chaos all around you. That's actually up to you to sort of figure out through experimentation. Um, And I I don't know, I I think there's a lot of that. and, And I certainly don't believe that i understand the whole space but i'm hoping that through conversations with you mm. and with everybody else that comes on this podcast we can try to start to define some of that space about well, yeah. what is it that helps people that people really need in order to perform under pressure
0: yeah and i i think this is what we're we're starting to see and, and there's certainly people in you know most of our departments you know t- taking a portfolio to champion um some of this and and as you say i, I do think you know, the there are the two sides, and there is an overlap because everybody that's trying to, you know, you know the the, the Chris Nixon's and the the Cliff Reads and the you know the all the, the 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 great things about the full med space where we you know the Coda change and and our ability to to hone our our actual skill set, but then marrying that with the longevity and the other things because they're all interconnected, Um and I think there are tools and it's having tools um i think in the meantime people listening to this and uh, stepping up in their own space and doing small things each day um matters um and continuing to replenish my book list um which is great Uh, there's
1: this um there's this james clear to quote him again quote that I, i really love he goes intensity makes a good story consistency makes progress and I think that's, to me, maybe the crux of a lot of what we've been talking about today, about this idea that like you're going to have these intense moments that you're going to prepare for and you're going to train for and that's going to be a good story. But then what? What do you do the next day? How do you drill that? How do you how do you be consistent in your quest yeah. to sort of be a better version of you in the, that next day? Um, you know what, what you said to keep showing up for work every day and to try to be to try to be better as you go. And, and I think you know I mean a
0: lot of these things like any kind of improvement or performance is, is because you're not getting immediate feedback um, and <laughs> you know your actual you know incremental improvements accrue over time and and you know suddenly but you know it's like any new new practice new habit formation you know that 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 result will will eventually manifest and then you'll be on to the next one <laughs> but um i think also that when we were just going back to what we're talking about interception and and just basics of of knowing when we're you know the 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 halt so hungry angry late tired and i think i was listening to great talk by katherine henderson who's the president of the uk college and she said you know and sad and overwhelmed you know what do you do when you know first of all can you identify that you are any in any of these situations and that you are struggling and then second about do you have you know do you have a plan then do you have a critical friend do you have someone that you can reach out to who's senior for support and I think having a culture where people are able to actually reach out if they're struggling is is important too um I mean I, I really like the idea of dreti and and you know some of the stoic philosophy but I think the ability to actually show emotion is important as well um I know we have to be able to regulate and control that in the heat of battle if you like but I think being able to have an outlet is important too
1: um, we're yeah, human. Absolutely, this, absolutely. It's the humanity side of medicine. Mm. Um, no, we are we are not robots. We are people, right? And and yeah. I think that that we have to act like that and believe that. And that's certainly something I'm I'm learning as I as I continue to get older, both as a human and as a as a doctor. Um, but but I think that the one of the things I love about the Stoics is that it's not really about not feeling things. It's not about mm-hmm. not having emotion. It's about feeling it and then understanding what that teaches you about your place in the universe, and then working about thinking to yourself, what type of human do you wanna be? And what's the link between where you are and where you wanna be? And it's that sense of self experimentation and self sort of um, um, sharpening. I'm not sure if that's the right word or not, but but to continue to practice being yourself um, yeah. as you as you keep going.
0: And I, I think I find it interesting that throughout my medical training, um, despite, you know, what we're doing day to day and we're dealing with people at, at the best and, and worst um, times of their life that, you know, I think we do become quite good at internalizing our certainly I mean, my own experience is that being able to kind of override my own kind of emotions. And um, you know, I when I went back to study yoga in a bit more detail and look at some of the, you know, the the ancient texts and 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 start to um you know kind of process some of that. That was when I, I was starting to think, you know, it was ironically that I was thinking then more about you know, myself and, and as you say, your place in the universe and, and all of the other things that I think will really, you know, my training, I thought I would have been more in tune with this. Um, but actually I wasn't, um, and yeah, again, maybe, maybe it says more about me than it does my training, but I do think that we, you know, there, there comes a point where we, we do have to, to, uh, to bury, you know, a, a few of the things, um, to, to be able to, to, to show up again every day. So I think that if you don't do that judiciously um, with due outlet, it, it will um, come back at, at a later stage. Um, and yeah, so,
1: hmm. so no.
0: but as I say, a work in progress. Um, I, uh, I, I think that, uh, I think it's a very interesting area for me now and exciting because I think, well, you know, where can we go with this? Um, and as you see how can we, work smarter and um and better um moving forward um because our job is is great and it's so important and you know I I want to keep showing up for this job for you know for a longer time I I I don't want to uh to not be able to do this um I know some amazing emergency physicians practicing in their their 70s and probably should be you know um asking them you know what is you know you're still here, um, and you're still showing up every day. Um, maybe you're, maybe you've been doing all of this all, all along, or maybe it's something else.
1: All right, well, Cheryl, let's let's bring this home as we close out the episode here. Um, what challenge do you have for people that are listening? What do you want them to do differently tomorrow? What do you want them to try and practice?
0: Okay, so I've actually uh, borrowed this, and I don't know the original source, and it's something that I'm working with, um, this week. It's something introduced to me um, not that long ago and I think it came from palliative care teaching but it is actually an, I think it originally an emergency medicine based um, challenge so I want you uh, it's called the going home checklist so we'll use a checklist i want to take uh, a minute to think about your day at the end of your shift um, this week um, and firstly I just acknowledge one thing that was difficult and then let it go. And then I want you to consider three things because we know the power of positive things um, and the ability to negate things. We need more positives. Three things that went well. You might think why they went well, but um, just what went well. Check in on your colleagues. Are they okay? Um, Are you okay? And if you're not okay, who are your critical friends? Who are your seniors? Where can you go for support? And I want you to switch off. Um, your attention now is to going home, to resting, recharging, reconnecting with your family, with friends, um, and scheduling in some joy if you can. So that's what I'm going to be working with this week. Um, and yeah, I invite everybody listening. Um, and you know, no matter where you're working, I think that's a good going home
1: checklist. That's awesome. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm super excited to to do round two in the other way around and, and do that. Thank soon. you
0: very much for connecting. Keep up the great work. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading the book and yeah, looking forward to round two because I get to really dive into the emergency mind then. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dan.
1: Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.